the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. And this is Wine Women Radio. I'm Marcia Meekumber, your host today, here with guest co-host Patty Newman. Hey, Patty. Hi, Marcia. It's great to have you here. So Patty is a wine woman, of course. Uh, Specifically, Patty is a marketing and social media expert serving the wine industry, among other industries, but a big portion of her focus since she lives in Napa is to the wine industry. So thanks for stepping in today, Patty. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. And um, we wanted to start off today with a little bit of news um, I should probably, before I forget, because you know I do, um, kick off with the Wine Women news. Wine Women has a conference coming up. It's going to be November 5th. It will be held at Buena Vista Winery. It's open to the public. You don't even have to be in the wine industry to come and enjoy it. But it's focusing on a lot of soft skills, meaning um, helping people with their communication skills, um, identifying your personal communication styles. Um, Is it more dominant? Is it more supportive? Um, So there are a variety of uh, different types of soft skills in that arena uh, and communication styles that we'll be studying and putting to good use. What time is it? On the 5th, it will be from 9.30 to 5. Um, Tickets include lunch and wine and nibbles. Um, all those kinds it? of things. Uh, I think it the average ticket price is around two forty nine. But Sounds you can phenomenal. you go you just go to the Wine Women uh, website, which is winewomen.net, um, and you can find it right there on the homepage, really easily uh, to work with it. Um, besides Wine Women, we should get into some other industry news before we start in with our guest today. Um, the biggest news that we have right now. Uh, is the worry about the tariffs coming down from the current administration. Uh, so a recent article about this uh, from Menninger's Wine Business International uh, addressed the issue of how will the new U.S. tariffs impact the wine market. Um, and there is speculation that this proposed tariff that is supposed to, I believe, start taking place this Friday, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, it's a 25% tariff on French, Spanish, German and UK wines. Um, interestingly, not Italian wines. Somehow or other, they escaped the chopping blocks. They're not even entirely sure why Italy is not getting, you know, the the tax imposed upon their wine. Um, but the biggest speculation is that this means that the real sweet spot of wines coming from overseas, which is about the ten to fifteen dollar range may just kind of disappear because when you add a 25% tariff on top of that, um, there's just no way for producers to make their margins, for importers to make their margins, um, and all that type of, of thing. So the three tier system. The three tier, yeah, it, it gets complicated. So they posed a question to some experts asking, Won't all of the producers, retailers, importers, and wholesales work together to mitigate the tariff? And the answer was, well, no, not really. Retailers and wholesalers just want their margin. So they're just going to 
they're going to add that 25%, mar- you know, it's not a 25% margin, but that means that they're going to want that on top of whatever that new rate is, which is going to bump out the 10 to $15 price range. So importers and producers are the ones who are going to bear the brunt. They are going to see um, any margin that they had virtually disappear. Uh, and uh, their market share is going to get a lot smaller because Americans are not necessarily going to be changing their price, their their buying habits right away, and they're not suddenly going to go, okay, I'm going to be buying at ten to twenty five dollars. If they were used to buying ten to fifteen, there's just no way that they're suddenly going to be buying that. So expect to see those prices disappear off the shelves. So that's one piece of news. Um, another big piece of news related to how the market's going to shift was in an article posted by W. Blake Gray to Wine Searcher um, speculating that a recession is possibly unlikely, but wineries are looking to bolster their margins on a domestic basis and get a greater level of profits. So mm, there is going to be a shrinking in the U.S. market to a certain degree. Um There's a glut out there of wine available to the domestic market. Um, We know right now going through harvest right this minute um, that a lot of growers are not able to find buyers uh, for the prices that they want. Uh, And so there's an expectation that there's going to be some shifts there. Um, But in Blake Gray's uh, article, um, he stated that it was, quote, Nervous times for the U.S. wine industry, but not bad times, according to the speakers at the Wine Industry Financial Symposium that was just held in Napa. Um, About 85% of U.S. wineries, mostly from California, responding to an executive survey project revenue growth over the next year. I'm not getting that out quite right. They're projecting that revenue growth over the next year and a 75% greater profitability. So... Some things will see a better margin, some things won't. Um, And then that coupled with the oversupply means we're going to be seeing some growers getting squeezed out. The other little piece of news that caught my attention that I hit that was rather new um, was Sutter Home Winery is suing a New York-based company for up to $2 million for a trademark infringement, alleged trademark infringement, for misusing Sutter Home Winery's Napa Valley Company trademark, Napa Sellers, according to this new lawsuit. Um, So in this suit, the company alleges that Trivin Imports, a wine distributor and importer registered in New Rochelle, New York, used Sutter Home's Napa Sellers mark to sell a wine called Clos to Napa, according to the complaint filed October 2nd in the U.S. District Court in Northern District of California. Um, Triven has wine brands such as Claude de Napa Cellars that are produced exclusively for distribution by TVI, according to the complaint. I saw the artwork. It sure looked like it was straight infringement to me, but I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on television, so we'll have to see how all of this plays out. We don't really know. So uh, that's that's our little tidbit of news here. And the other last little tidbit is we're all waiting here in Northern California um, in the San Francisco Bay Area to have the lights turned out in less than 24 hours. Isn't that terrible? But they're expecting very high winds starting very early tomorrow morning. 
and we're all expecting to have our uh, power turned off for at least 24 hours, if not 48, or even days is a speculative thing. So fingers crossed, uh, all those good things. Yes, Patty, go ahead and pour me a little. That would be great. You pour whatever you like. Lots of hand signals going on during a podcast. You, need, you, can, you can say things because we're on an audio system. <laughs> In any event, I want to welcome our uh, guest today to the show because I've been really excited about having her on the show. And I want to welcome Melissa Smith, who is the sommelier of the Silicon Valley stars. Melissa, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, for our listeners who may not know Melissa, um, I want to give you the full intro because it's really kind of interesting. First of all, listeners, you can find out a whole lot more about Melissa at enotrias.com. That's spelled E-N-O-T-R-I-A-S.com. And what Melissa does is she provides in-home and corporate wine tasting seminars. She also does private seller services to the top collectors in the Silicon Valley region. But she also maintains a full-time position as the head sommelier for K&L Wine Merchants. Oh, not anymore. Ooh, I'll take that off the list. you got to take that off your website. <laughs> anyway, things you learn as you go along there. Uh, she's developed the first iPhone app for wine pronunciation called the Enotrio Guide. I hope I'm saying it right. Am I saying it right? All right, good. You know, you have to, more more words, less nodding on a podcast. <laughs> we'll get it all straight. But one of the most exciting things that she started to do a little bit more recently is that in 2018, Melissa became the first person ever to be certified by the California State Bar Association for her seminar on the valuation of wine collections. Her reputation for providing high-profile clients with seller services has led to a series of MCLE seminars, and you're going to have to tell us what that actually stands for in a second. And she works directly with family law and trust attorneys as a valued resource in legal cases, as well as with USPAP compliant appraisals. More acronyms. I don't know what all of them are. People get divorced. That, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And how to split up the wine collection. Juicy, get it? I know. It's very good, Patty. You're totally on point there. Uh, if that is not already enough, Melissa has already spent 15 years uh, as a CIA trained chef in top kitchens across the country, as well as Japan, doing stints at the French Laundry and at Terra under Chef Hirosone. Is it Sone? Do I have that right? Uh -huh. Since I don't speak uh, Japanese either. Um, I'm going to be in trouble with some of these things. So um, she has worked as a chef at a Relais and Chateau Dude Ranch in Montana, um, also a hunting camp in Idaho and a charter yacht in southeast Alaska, uh, and the pineapple-scented season in Maui. Yes. That's, really, that's really hitting a lot of places on the globe, Melissa. Congratulations. Melissa is certified, uh, certified by the Court of Master Sommeliers, uh, the Culinary Institute of America, if you didn't know what I was talking about, CIA means something different in the wine industry than other people may think. Also, the California State Bar Association, the Saki Education Council, and the Appraisers Association uh, for USPAP, which stands for, do you know, do you remember? <laughs> Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisals Practices. Aha, okay. 
very good. Important stuff. So not too many of us um, get to be around wine, work with wine, or even taste wine that is at the level at which it needs to be appraised for its value. What would you what would you like to tell our listeners about what sent you on this journey to become certified by the California Bar <laughs> to appraise fine wine for legal cases? This is a great question. So, um, I was at K and L Wine Merchants in, from about 2010 to 2014. I became the head sommelier there, and while I was there we would get phone calls for people that wanted to have their wine cellars inventoried for one reason or another. And one day we got a call for a woman that wanted to send her nanny in to appraise her soon to be ex-husband's wine collection. (laughs) And I was just like, what is a nanny going to know about writing down the particulars of a bottle (laughs) of wine? It's like, if she writes down, Silver Oak Cabernet, maybe she doesn't know to write down the vintage or if it's Alexander Valley or Napa. So I kind of stepped in at that point and then one of my first clients was incredibly high profile divorce and the wine collection was valued at about six hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's um, a pretty significant collection. And it was only about two thousand bottles. It wasn't even, you know, thousands and thousands of bottles. It was it was all very high value. Um, and one of the things I ran into was that they were, I think probably at the Napa Valley wine auction or mm-hmm. something like that, where you can buy a full barrel made by mm-hmm. a reputable producer. And then they put basically a private label on it. So right. Chateau yada yada for I'll just in my case, but the Smith family. Mm-hmm. And so I think they probably spent $10,000 on buying that bar- barrel at auction. Right. But when it came to the divorce, it has no value because you're not able to sell that to retailers or auction it off once it's been personalized like that. Right. So that was when I really had to, I almost had to stand trial for that valuation. And that was just at the beginning of my career, the impetus for me starting Anotrius. And then my very, very, very great family friends, Jason and Mary Luros, are attorneys in Napa. So mm-hmm. they invited me to do a seminar on the valuation on the evaluation of wine collections for family law and trust attorneys in Napa. And then Sonoma County invited me to do it for them. So now I do a series of um, MCLEs, which attorneys are required to do a certain hour of continuing education. Mm-hmm. Um, so they actually get credit for listening to me talk for an hour about the valuation <laughs> wine collections. So I do that um, on a private basis. And then I, I've also teamed up with country clubs to do the seminars for them. Mm-hmm. So um, everybody gets to learn about why wines have a certain value or why they don't. And one of the biggest points I've wanted to get across to people is that home insurance doesn't really cover wine collections. They only cover a couple thousand dollars at most. So you actually have to have a separate writer for wine. And um, that's something that a lot of Californians don't know. It's like jewelry. Jewelry requires a separate writer. Jewelry, As do some other things. Um, So I, I have had so many conversations about 
wine insurance and I found one that is fantastic above board. They don't require your life insurance and your home insurance and all of these <laughs> other things. And I get um, no, there's no affiliation for me other than I completely believe in, in their business and they're associated with Alice, but they're called insuremywine.com. And so I want people to really have an inventory before something happens, like a fire or a flood or a <laughs> theft or an earthquake or anything like that that we're... Do insurers require an inventory before, you know, before providing the rider? Yes. They do? Yes. Okay. So they require that. And, and then uh, it has to be managed because, of course, some people actually drink the wines in their collections. Yeah. Some may not be drunk for quite some time or be collected just for collecting sake, but... Yeah, depending on the policy, I think that, and I'm not in the insurance business, but I think that there has to be annual um, updates to the collection if there's significant bottles coming in and out. And some bottles can be insured individually. So if you have some DRCs mm -hmm. or other really high value bottles, you get those individually done and then you also get a, a blanket okay. coverage for everything All else. All right, so for our listeners who don't know DRC, you want to spell it out for them? It's one of the top wines in the world. Domain Romani Conti, so one yeah. of the most collected, highly valued wines in the world. And it's got a lot of syllables, so people like to shorten it up to DRC. Exactly. <laughs> and it is. It's one of the most famous ones. And um, I have a friend who went through liquidation of a family member's seller and had to have somebody out and there were a lot of really nice labels in the collection but the appraiser um called into uh, called into question its value because of storage conditions so that's another element that you have to address how, how do you handle that melissa when you're being hired to go in and make an evaluation of a collection so i'm i'm very above board i tell people if so basically i go through the scenario if you're going to liquidate this and i have to go to one of my top most respected auction houses or retailers or restaurants um is it are they going to be able to purchase this mm -hmm. at the market value and if the wines haven't been stored properly they have no market right. value so so do they have to be in um you know a wine fridge for you to 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 even give it a look <laughs> essentially I, ideally they are um in a temperature controlled mm -hmm. environment that could be a basement mm -hmm. that just doesn't have fluctuation in temperature um it could be in a Lacoche, it could be in a home wine cellar. Um, one more reason to have wine insurance is if the power ever goes out and- Your fridge goes out your too. Your fridge goes out, things like that, where the bottles could either all freeze or all heat up. If you don't have the insurance to cover that fluctuation, it's another total loss. So, <laughs> um, but I've been in, I've been in extraordinary cellars I've been in people's homes. We get other people that would just show up with these bottles and we could tell that they'd, um, that they had just lifted them or something like that. So we also need um, proof of provenance mm -hmm. as well as proof that they've been stored properly. Right. So that was the next thing I was gonna get to. Where did they come from? <laughs> so if they're, um, if they are ever, if there's ever an issue, sometimes we'll open bottles just mm -hmm. to, to check and see. Mm -hmm. 
and those of us have been in the industry long enough know exactly what a wine should taste like. So is this where Coravin really like comes into play? Yes. So <laughs> Coravin's another one I totally plug and should finally get an affiliate with. Them. Yeah, that's true. But I, I just recommend for people to really fully enjoy their wine collections to have a Coravin. So, mm-hmm. um, I think we were at KNL given one of the first ones to try out. And I remember um, I was on a little trip with Clyde and he was going to bring a six liter of Bordeaux from the 60s and he Coravaned it before we went to the restaurant and we found out it was off. So oh, all of the... Heartbreaking. All, yes, but it could have been heartbreaking and embarrassing um, yeah. to be done at the restaurant. Right. So one of the ways just like... Smart. Like yeah. if I had had one, then... then I would have been able to open up a really nice bottle for you guys today um, and knowing it was sound. So one, you can't Coravent a wine and then sell it at auction. They are checking that to make sure that they haven't been pierced um, or tampered with in any way. Mm -hmm. But for your own edification, knowing that the bottle's sound, that's huge. And then for um, the auction houses, from my understanding, they'll just go ahead and open bottles because they can't resell it once it's been coravaned, but some of them might just coravan it, right. take out a little bit, and then use it for staff education if there's right. any issues. So that brings me to the, the next issue. So obviously it's um, it's what the wine is. Has it been stored well? Obviously, you know, nobody's going to call you in for evaluating the earlier mentioned 10 to $15, the low-end imports. And nobody's going to call you in for that. But the much uh, higher-priced fine wines that are out there, um, you'll get the phone call. So the wine, the storage, the provenance, and related to the provenance was reading one of my recent favorite books, which I cannot remember its title, but you'll tell me what it is, was the book about Rudy uh, Corona. I can't say his last name. So Billionaire Forger. And it was fascinating to learn... Um, his different methods. So is this something else that you've also, you know, gotten into or have resources to go, uh, what, what has indicated to you? Eh, this, this may not, this may be a fake. So I um, outsource most of that mm-hmm. in a professional capacity. Uh, there's a master sommelier that I, he has extensive um, experience with forged bottles so I will send him anything that's in question um, I really trust him respect mm-hmm. him as a person mm-hmm. and um, I myself as a sommelier at a restaurant now I've seen more counterfeit bottles of 1982 Mouton than I have anything else and it's amazing <laughs> and I know exactly what it should taste like thank you Clyde Beffa um, <laughs> you know the experiences at K&L were just boundless in, in what we we're exposed to but um, yeah, there's a ton, a ton, a ton of counterfeit Mouton and whether or not the clients or the guests know it, um, they bring it in for corkage. It's, I'm not going mm-hmm. to embarrass them in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's just something I, I come across. Fake. Oh yeah. All the time. Yeah. The yeah. movie, have you watched sour grapes? On yeah. I don't think I have watched it yet. Is it which? It's all about Ruby. which one is it, which one is it on? Which uh, network is it on? Is it on Amazon? It is on Netflix. Okay, yeah. I've got Netflix, so I'm yeah, gonna watch really, it. It's really, really good. But, so I will do that. And then I, you know, just like I said, as a sommelier, 
um, uncorking bottles of wine at work, the bottle condition, the, the sometimes the um, the label just mm-hmm. looks either too good or too bad. Right. Um, I, for a while, worked in this gentleman's cellar on the peninsula, and it, it was the most meticulous wine collection I'd ever seen, and everything was as if it was just released. And, but I knew the labels were too them. perfect. No, no, it, his were all oh. all perfect because he'd taken incredible ah, care of them. It was okay. he's a avid collector of many, many, many things. Um, but his wine collection, mm-hmm. they were perfectly stored in his cellar the entire time. So um, I I know that some things that look too good to be true sometimes they're just taken really good care of but then i see other ones that there's no reason the wine from the 90s should look as you know older than it should and have, have you ever um opened a bottle at a restaurant uh for a customer and tasted it first and knew it was off but served it or do sommeliers served it and they thought it was acceptable and you're like, okay. oh yes all the time okay. so that's one of the things as a sommelier you know we're pouring you a taste to let us know if there's an issue or not, um, to know if there's a problem with the bottle, if it's gone through secondary fermentation, if it's cork, things like that. Um, so I've worked at two different style restaurants. The restaurant I'm at now, we pour everything table side. The restaurant I was at before, Hakkasan, we did the French service where we present the bottle, go to the side, taste it ourselves. If there's any issue, then we just grab another bottle and um but table side have you ever done it oh they yeah continue, they yeah. continue to drink it yeah spend the five yeah i just have to say very recently i took a 2006 bottle you know for corkage at a restaurant close by um and i you know i didn't have a corvin which i did uh and and they opened it and they were they were really nice they thought it was cork they still decanted it and brought it over my stepdad attempted to drink it and after like two sips and me trying it I just took it away from him because I knew the winemaker was going to be really upset <laughs> he was drinking a corked wine so and then they they brought a current vintage of it and problem solved and all that but you know good psalms are in good service they're very good at you know being polite about it and not you know doing something funky at the table so yeah I, when it happened the last time I just I went to go decant it, um, and then I just quietly whispered in their ear, I, I think that the glass is off, I'm happy to pour you a taste, so that no one else at the table really heard. And uh, and he he just thanked me and ordered a different bottle off of the list, so. Very cool. We're gonna hold on a second, because Misty just came in, so hold on. Misty's here. We just stopped for a quick second. Misty Rodebush Kane, yeah. Marketing Director from St. Supery. Hello. Straight from there. Thank you for coming, Misty. Yeah, thanks That's for having great. me. How's it? Is it I'm sure here. the traffic is crazy out there, and uh, everybody's in scramble mode trying to plan for the great power down. Yes. PG&E is yes. going to power us down in the morning, but hopefully by the time this podcast comes up, we're all going to have power again. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. We'll see yeah. how that works out. So, yeah. So that's a big issue. I guess all the wineries will lose power too. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's a big mm-hmm. one. I keep wondering about what's going to happen for those who are uh, doing temperature control on the tanks and monitoring them. Carbonic maceration. I'm kind of like, uh, what are they going to do? And all yeah. the guests that plan their annual trip. 
Yeah. Yeah. During harvest, all the parties. Oh, yeah, with the hotels as well. So it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a little bit on the crazy they're, side. They're so, yes. yes. So, uh, we've been talking with uh, Melissa Smith, our guest from Enotrias. Enotrias.com, if you want to find it. E N O T R I A S.com. Uh, who specializes, one of her many specialties actually, but we've been talking a lot about valuation of wine collections, particularly. Um, for insurance purposes, particularly for legal cases. So some good examples was uh, uh, a very fine wine collection with a husband and wife split, or, or a wife and a wife split, and a husband and husband split. We're modern here. Uh, <laughs> any, in any way in which you have a legal separation and a desire to legally split up the existing wine collection. Um, and the many factors that go into it. We were most recently talking about issues of um, what do you do around fake wines. Melissa was talking about the numerous 1982 Mouton Rochechild um, wines that were not genuine um, that she's had. Um, so, so obviously, a Somalia has, has an advantage over us lay folks in just having tasted enough of these to know what the real McCoy um, tastes like versus not the real thing. We didn't get too much into um, s- some of the fakery that has occurred in the past has occurred because um, restaurants and other providers don't destroy the bottles or the labels from consumed genuine article. Is that becoming, do you know if that's becoming more of a common practice after the Rudy Karwanian, um case that restaurants and so forth are destroying consumed bottles of the real McCoy? I really wish it was. There is an opportunity for the woman that is known for dealing with um, the counterfeit bottles to Mm -hmm. intercept a ton of them. And I approached her and said, you should be purchasing this lot of empty bottles and and destroying them. This is your number one cause. And I didn't even get a response. Um, I personally will not give guess back their bottles unless I think that they're not going to do anything with it. You know, if they're going <laughs> to shove a candle on it and have it, you know, in their home, that's one thing. But if there's any chance of it going back on the market, I want to do everything I can to, for, to prevent it right. from going back on the market. So for our listeners who may not know and go, who is this Rudy guy with the long, complicated Karwanian. That's at least that's how I, I say so. it, but I'm yeah. sure if that's right. So, uh, great mysterious background for our listeners who don't know. Uh, came from a wealthy Indonesian family of dubious and unknown kind of um, background and wealth origins as well. Um, and after several years, uh, Rudy was basically caught and tried and jailed um, for counterfeiting an enormous number of high-end wines, primarily French wines. So we're talking about um, DRC, um, most definitely would have been one of them. Um, But it also would have included um, the fine wines of Margot, uh, Chateau Margot, uh, other fine wines of the Medoc uh, in Bordeaux, um, Chateau de Quim. Um, a lot of burgundy. He, a lot he, of burgundy as well. Lot, that's okay. what ended up getting him caught was because the winemaker said, we didn't even make this wine in that So, the, so he was faking 
a volume that didn't exist. Exactly. So if you follow the number, the production numbers, you could. But it took quite a quite an amount of time to figure that out. So uh, the the CD underbelly of uh, high end wine and high end wine appraisal and um, um, auctions and so forth and. Let's hope we're done with that for a while, right? Yeah. The rest of us just want to enjoy our wines, which is really where you started, uh, which is if you are a master sommelier, as you are, you get, no, you're not a master I'm sommelier. A certified sommelier. You're certified sommelier. <laughs> See, I get confused because also listeners who don't know this, there's the court of sommeliers. Court, there's, it's the court, court of master, master sommeliers, and there's four levels to that. Right. I'm certified, and then there's advanced and master after that. Yeah. And I don't have the level of crazy that it takes to become yeah. master. And, and right, and it's and, and it's okay oh the study the 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 amount of studying that has to go on is really kind of insane. So, um, so certified sommelier, uh, it still involves an enormous amount of studying um, to achieve that, but it also means that you can help your customers much faster when they are trying to determine what do I want to pair, what do, what what's going to match the the palette that I've described that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got a more sweet sensibility, if you have a sensibility for particular types of burgundies, you can make a lot of great suggestions for them. So I know part of your business with Anna Trias is um, working events, creating events um, for your clients um, and helping them learn different ways to taste their wine. So for our listeners who may not know, Melissa provides a lot of different seminars, tasting seminars, mm-hmm. loads of fun. Everything from exploring the wines of Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. which I take it to mean like this is what we used to think of as um, all of the, the, you know, down down all the way through the southern corridor, southern winemaking corridor of uh, the San Francisco general area mm-hmm. um, was the wines from there. Exploring Pinot Noir. Who doesn't love Pinot Noir? Well, there are probably a few, right? <laughs> yes. I have a yeah. question. Yeah, please. You teach a class to students at university mm-hmm. about how to drink like a baller, which I don't even know what that means. But I, I'm so a, glad you asked that question, student, Patty, because I wanted to know more about that. On a student budget. Could so, you explain how much fun that is and some of the things you go yeah. through? Some of your choices of wines? Absolutely. Uh, So years ago, I was um, invited by Stanford University to teach teach a class, and we were trying to come up with something that wouldn't break their banks as students. So I said, why don't we do one on how to be a wine baller on a student budget? And the other part of this is that um, I was seeing a lot of the top guys in tech, you know, in their early, early 20s, the VCs would take them out to dinner and hand them the wine list and have them pick whatever they wanted. And they just were looking at like absolutely shocked. They didn't know what they were looking at. And they're shopping. Are they shopping on price almost exclusively? Well, um, they just didn't didn't know. So I think that, yeah, they would default to to cost. But I am. How did you break it down? Whites, reds, bubbles. How how does that work for a kid like my nephew's a senior in college who calls me what should I get when I take my girlfriend today yeah yeah so um, I went over kind of a wine 101 what are the primary grape varietals you're looking for 
I broke it down to how to taste, um, how to pronounce wine because, uh, God, it was like 11 years ago I developed the first wine app for, or the first app for wine uh, pronunciation and now it's since I, I So have, you're getting them away from Pinot Neuer? Viognier. 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 Well, it was called the Enotria Guide and I've since, um, I, I stopped uh, renewing it with the Apple store. So it was, it was really big in Hong Kong. And I, I came up with the idea cause I would take the Dumbarton bridge to work every day at K and L and I was listening to an audiobook about Julia child and they pronounced a river in Paris. And I just, just said, if I was reading this out of a book, there's no way that's how I would have pronounced it. Right. And then I was, you know, this new kid at K and L. So I developed the app and, and went to, mm-hmm. um, had other people do the recordings that were specialists in each different area and and it was it was great it was successful for a number of years and then apple just made it too hard to renew so for the class we went over all of that and this is the part where the the tariffs thing is going to be an issue because i was going to direct importers uh where we're getting wines from all over the world under 15 dollars a bottle that were fantastic mm-hmm. so i was able to introduce them to sancerre to um Pinot Noir from different parts of the world mm-hmm. that they could really enjoy for under $15 a bottle and it was fantastic so that they would know like okay go to wines that are going to be food friendly Chenin Blanc Pinot Noir stick with those Rieslings like mm-hmm. flip to those you'll sound intelligent and it'll be a great experience so um that's a that's what I did, and that remains one of my most popular classes. That my, you do, yeah. yeah. My my cost as a sommelier leading the exam doesn't change whether I'm doing fifteen dollar and under mm-hmm. or two thousand dollar and above bottles. You know, they they get the same. Yeah, I I I kind of um, attached myself to your initial story there about um, watching VCs taking um, young twenty somethings in the tech world and there's still enormous number of them coming out of Stanford and Northern California schools. They've all got great ideas for a new app, a new program, you know, pick, pick whatever the technology is. And then the intimidation you've prepared and rehearsed your three minute pitch, whatever you get. I mean, you get more than three minutes, but they're making a lot of their decisions pretty fast about your product offering. And they've rehearsed that to death. And then they had no idea that they were expected or they're going to be judged on their wine selections when they go out with the people from the VC, you know, as well. So how unprepared. So what a great offering that you have that you help them learn this as well uh, so that, you know, they can look a little intelligent, even though they're not they're not high wine, they are high tech, that they're getting a hold of it. So I think that's great that that's making sense for them. Uh-oh, we lost a phone. We lost a phone to the floor. Hope it, hope it bounces a little it's bit. Good, yeah. It's good. It's okay. <laughs> All right. So some of the other um, fun classes that you offer, of course, is exploring Champagne, exploring Italy, exploring Bordeaux. Um, and one that really had me intrigued was Exploring the wines of Mexico or Mexico and South America because Mexico does not have an organized system the way France and Spain and Italy and the U.S. All of them have different systems by which they organize 
fine wine and levels of quality of wine. Mexico, as far as I know, is still completely wild west. You can you can grow any variety anywhere. There's no control over you know what they can put on their labels, or is there now? And I'm just unaware of it. I'm not as professional on the legality of it. <laughs> I do know that um, when it first started, the taxes on importing a case were just astronomical. It was it just sounded like another one of the things that they were. You know, we've heard about the avocado scandal and everything like that. So true. Um, it sounded like it was along those lines, which is why we weren't seeing more. Mexican wines mm-hmm. because they were just doing everything that they could to prevent them from coming into the U.S. Uh, but Baja has this really fantastic up-and-coming wine region. And they do. They kind of specialize in Italian varietals down mm-hmm. there, which is amazing. And some of them are not good at all, and some of them are really, really amazing. So for my birthday a few years ago, my girlfriend Gloria, who has Tamarindo Restaurant in Oakland, her and I and another girlfriend went down there and spent a few days um, visiting the different wineries, and it was just it was amazing. learning the wines of Baja. Exactly, very cool. I well, sold, that's the only actually sold wines. You did, Mexico Patty, and uh, on the East Coast for a distributor, and we had what was the fourth largest. I was just trying to look up the name. Funny how you forget. And uh, the uh, restaurants I went to, the Mexican restaurants, absolutely loved it. They knew the producer. Zinfandel, Cab, Sauvignon Blanc, and a Chardonnay. And the prices were so low. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, nice. I've had some very well, good, I've had some very good Baja Mexico wines. For, for Misty, you? Yeah, for listeners out there, it's actually called the Valle de Guadalupe. So Thank that's you. the region um, if you're, you know, Googling. And I highly recommend it. I'm um, a San Diego State grad and that... Unfortunately, that entire uh, region wasn't developed when I was down there um, going to school. Going to school. It was just getting off the ground. But um, there are some great wineries and also an mm-hmm. up-and-coming um, food scene down there as well. So real farm-to-table, some great restaurants. Oh, wonderful. And it's, um, definitely worth checking out if you're in that part of California, so. Southern California, San Diego. It's pretty an easy, mm-hmm. about an hour and a half, two-hour right. drive. right. So, um, so then moving on down to South America, of course, most people are familiar with wines, um, from Chile, uh, Argentina, uh, overall. Um, but I recently had some wonderful wines, uh, bubbles, bubbles from Brazil. So, um, it was interesting to see some other countries are starting to develop vineyards in South America or Maybe they've been developed for a very long time and they're just getting to the States for all I know. Um, so I, I shouldn't try to speak for them when I know so little. <laughs> I've never had any Brazilian wine. So I just have, have to you? say it was, no. it was lovely sparkling wine. So nice. um, fun, fun stuff to try. And you've got, you also offer, um, this, one, this one was kind of funny, Mommy's First Wine Tasting and Daddy's First Whiskey Tasting. Uh, is this for uh, relatively new parents who need a break from children? That's exactly <laughs> what it is. So it's kind of to complement the baby shower. Um, it's it's a way for the parents to kind of give the other parents the kids for the day, and then they get time to reconnect with the fellow daddies or fellow mommies. And I've gotten a lot of slack from the women, and they're like, we like whiskey. <laughs> it's just the name. We can do whiskey tasting, but it's it's really fun. It's more of 
a bonding experience. There's a little bit of education. Um, I mean, there's a, a lot of education. Mm-hmm. No matter what group I'm in front of, I just tailor it to them. So okay. whether everybody is just sitting there listening um, with bated breath about all of the information or they just want to get buzzed and go on to the next thing. But this is, it, it really is a fun experience and opportunity for them to to hang out. So let's, and of course the last one on the list is Mad Men cocktail class. <laughs> Sounds like loads of fun. Um, in, in probably in some cases, uh, so much loads that people can't always remember exactly what they had, yeah. but, um, Mad Men cocktails are certainly going to be the potent ones out there. Um, I want to ask, um, how large, what's the range of the group sizes that you offer your experiences to? For the more formal ones, it's 16 to 20. Mm-hmm. Um, for private dinners, we've done them as large as 50. And for much larger events, we'll break it down into individual stations and I'll bring on some other, my favorite female sommeliers to pour at different mm-hmm. tables and we'll, we can do up to 200. So okay. it's just... Um, so it's, it's a very large range that you can serve. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. And you just pick out. How did you get known as the Silicon Valley sommelier? Oh, my God. That's Tell the story. Funny. I don't know if I can. Um, I, uh, boy, how do I put this one? Um, so I had a, a client, and he was celebrating his 60th birthday party, and uh, he wanted someone to guide the family, or the, the friends that were going to be in attendance through uh, Pinot Noir tasting. Mm-hmm. And it was my... I think it's back when I was working, you know, six, seven days a week and it was my only day off. And I looked at where the address was and I saw in the signature, it was for a dentist and living in Los Altos. And I Googled the address and the first thing that comes up is the price of the house. (laughs) Dang, dentists are doing really good these days. (laughs) Um, so I, I just said, fine. Yeah, I'll do it. I'm happy to do it. Blah, blah, blah. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and I, I show up at the home and I set up and, um, and everyone, the, the house manager is like, oh, they're, they're busy doing a, a tour of Facebook. They're going to be a little bit late. I was like, wow, they're letting Dennis tour Facebook. That's pretty cool. Um, I guess maybe I could even Google or <laughs> get a tour. Facebook someday. So I, um, I get set up. We have a wonderful tasting. The, the birthday man comes up to me and, um, He's like, thank you so much. This is so wonderful. I keep trying to get my my son into wine. Um, His friend Kevin is really into wine, and he just bought his company called Instagram. (laughs) And I'm like, who's your son? (laughs) And he's like, Mark. And I look over, and I'm like, oh, the guy with that dog that I recognize. And I was just, I, I was just... That's oh a good story, God. Melissa. So um, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. I, I ran into him again recently. Um, but yeah, just, uh, and it was, it was a pivotal moment for me. He, um, I don't always get additional gratuity when I do these events, but he gave me, um, <laughs> he gave me a hundred dollar bill. And I was just, for me, it was like, wow. I thought you were going to say that he gave you a, a bunch of stock or something. That would have been really great. I did buy the stock at... <laughs> I think $38 a share when it came out. So, um, but it was, um, to me that, that was one of those moments that gave me confidence that, okay, if I can teach wine to the father of one of the most powerful men in the world, 
um, I, I am probably on the right path. And I've kept that $100 bill in my um, credit, in my business card case ever since then as a reminder of, um, of my worth. And it's, um, it, it just, yeah, it was a huge cool. moment for me. Congratulations. Congrats. Yeah, that's a great story. Did they give you referrals or um, how did you market yourself? I'm not good at marketing myself. I, I kept it quiet, but I've come to That's points. not true. She called me. <laughs> That's true. I did, which took a lot of gall. But I mean, there have been moments where that'll be literally the last money I have for my name and I won't, I won't spend it just because it has that significance. Yeah. So, um, yeah. That's real important. And that brings me to my next question, which is, you know, we're all women sitting in the room, wine women. Um, is this is an area where we have... Uh, we have more difficulty, which is, you just said, we're not as good as our male counterparts at marketing at ourselves, at standing up for ourselves, in seizing an opportunity where, where, you know, unless we feel like we can tick off every box of somebody's stated requirements, we don't speak up. Whereas a guy will see this, I mean, there's been studies to this. A guy will see that you know, he's got one qualification of four and he'll step forward and say, I'm your perfect guy. You know, what What advice do you want to pass on to our female listeners in particular? We, our male listeners can take the advice too, but our female listeners in particular about what you've learned along your career steps that you go, boy, I, if only I knew this then or here's what I want to tell my younger counterparts. Now's your time. <laughs> So uh, there's a couple things. Um, be kind. Being kind is so important. Um, helping other women. Women helping other women is huge. Um, it really is. And and if you are a man listening to this, do your best to promote other women. It doesn't have to be a boys club. And what I've seen throughout my career, I was a chef for 15 years before I became a sommelier, is that there's so many boys clubs and they feel more comfortable bringing in and promoting another man that they know instead of looking right next to them at the woman that's been working her tail off that's kept her head down that's not really like pushing herself forward elevate them find ways to give them opportunities to shine because i've been more competent than so many men that i've been surrounded with by and in my years and I just that's why I do the best that I can to one bring in the most experienced women to my events to elevate them as much as I can in any industry but I've also had phenomenal male mentors along the way Clyde Beffa Eric Story of Smith Story his wife Allie has also been she's been on the show me so um there have been incredible men in my life as well that have helped me and those are the ones that I think are doing the absolute best job to to really um, help women get part of the stage. It, it, Very cool. Yeah, that yeah. was was some great advice, and and I do agree with that. You know, having that balance as well. You know, because it's fantastic to have women mentors and and surround yourself with with you know other women colleagues. But it is very nice to have that balance and have some male. Um, male colleagues as well because we all look at things differently yeah so, and, and, and and actually just immerse yourself in a culture where it's conducive to your individual and personal values it's helps you to it will help you to succeed yeah. as well yeah and i loved what you said about 
um, men, don't forget to reach out to the women or woman who's been perhaps working side by side with you or within your peer group of wherever you are and had the nose to the grind down is completely qualified for whatever next step position that she could move on to. And just because she's not a guy jumping in there, you know, and, you know, waving big red flags, I've been thinking of the people um, who direct airplanes, you know, waving the big flags with their arms, you know, uh, that does not mean that she is not the most qualified person yeah, just for the next job. So if get right and and do your part to reduce the 208 years it is projected to take to get us to gender pay equality. We need to change that. And men, you need to do your part on that, too. Anyway, that's enough of my preaching. I really I want to uh, I should really say quickly, uh, we've been drinking the Mathis Sonoma Valley Grenache, the 2015 vintage during the show. Uh, it's been delicious for me. Anybody, anybody else have a, a comment they want to throw in for um, this nice red before we go? I think Peter Mathis yeah. is one of my favorite producers. Um, I got to go check him out uh, years ago with Gregory Condes, who has a really fantastic portfolio. And um, I, I sell more Mathis Grenache at the restaurant I'm at now. Um, we're actually sold out of it now, I think. Greg, call us. <laughs> and, uh, and the rosé is just fantastic. And it's just a, there's some really cool history there. All right, cool. And listeners, don't forget, if you would like to know more about the Wine Women Conference, just go to winewomen.net. Um, and if you tune in to us next week, you can hear a second show with Melissa. We're going to be focusing in on wine and food pairings since she's got 15 years as an executive chef uh, and uh, CIA trained, as well as, of course, being a certified sommelier. So we thought now we're going to zoom in a little bit on food and wine pairings and focus on that. So I want to thank our listeners for uh, being here and Patty for being here. Thank you, Patty Newman. Thank you. Social media marketing expert to local boutique wineries and Misty Rodebush Keen from St. Supri. Thanks, Misty. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Thanks listeners. listeners. Thank you. Thank you.